Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. That Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to The Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Michael Brown in a somewhat cloudy and windswept Bay Area who is looking forward next month to going back home for a week or so to see his folks. Today I'm joined by Amanda Marcotte, Salon's senior political reporter in New York, and by Alice Thwaite. She's back, the sometime editor of the Echo Chamber, who is currently in Oxford, in a week that has seen the leaders of the two Koreas declare an end to nuclear weapons on the peninsula. We ask, what does the Windrush scandal say about Britain in 2018? Britain's Home Secretary Amber Rudd is facing opposition calls to step down amid a scandal over the country's treatment of Caribbean immigrants and their descendants. The so-called Windrush generation was invited to the UK to fill labour shortages after World War II. But some of them and their relatives have been denied basic rights and threatened with deportation because they were falsely branded illegal. Rudd had told MPs Britain did not have targets for removing immigrants. It's now emerged that targets were set, but she says these were different. The immigration arm of the Home Office has been using local targets for internal performance management. These were not published targets against which performance was assessed. But if they were used inappropriately, then I am clear that this will have to change. When Lord Carrington resigned over the Falklands. He said it was a matter of honour. Isn't it time that the Home Secretary considered her honour and resigned? Alice, Jeremy Corbyn has asked for the Home Secretary Amber Rudd to resign over the cruel and misdirected immigration policy that the Labour leader has said is responsible for the hardships faced by the Windrush generation. Should she? And if she should, why? Do you know what? As as I was preparing for this podcast, I was thinking to myself, the one question I hope Roy Field doesn't ask is whether or not Amber Rudd is going to resign. <laughs> purely purely because I I actually don't 
know enough about historically about why politicians have resigned in the past. And also because I've been speaking to people who are both Tory supporters and Labour supporters, and there's a clear partisan divide here, despite the fact there seems to be consensus entirely over the Home Office's wrongdoing, you know, um, over these guys, British citizens. Um, I mean, there's there's different, there's obviously different ways that people describe this, but from a Tory perspective, from the people I've been speaking to, it was Alan Johnson who um, put the, I suppose, the policy down, that they were going to get rid of these records. And then the digital identity cards didn't come through, which meant there was no record of these people having citizenship. Um, but from, from I guess, from my perspective and other people's perspective, the fact that this has been a key oversight for people from the Caribbean, um, I don't think it would have happened had they had more awareness of the experiences of people of colour in the UK and um, all the stories that have been developing over this. And it's not just over the last couple of weeks, you know, apparently people from the Caribbean have been knowing about this for years and years and years. So should Amber Rudd resign? I like... As far as I can tell, when politicians resign, it's for fairly arbitrary reasons. Uh, so I don't actually know how to answer that question. Has the Home Office been totally, totally, totally appalling on this front? Absolutely. And also, what can we expect from the future of um, you know people who've come from Europe post Brexit? I think that's the big question, also. Which is well, being okay, I've got to stop you there, Alice, because you're, uh, you're preempting me on on a, on a further question. So let, but let's just stop. It does appear to me to be that in the 1980s, in the 1990s, if a politician did something wrong and had to apologise, invariably they resigned. Something of this magnitude. But it seems that in the age of a 24-hour news cycle, that if you just kind of keep your head down, you can kind of get away with it. Amanda, how does the UK's government's belated mere culpa to the Windrush generation. How does that kind of contrast with the Trump administration's political fight and response to the plight of the dreamers? Well, I mean, it does seem things are as terrible as they are in the UK, maybe a little less disingenuous and bad faith than the Trump administration has been dealing with the dreamers. And for those who don't know, what's been going on in the United States is that for years, there's been an effort by Democrats to functionally legalize a number of immigrants, mostly from Mexico and South America and Central America, uh, who moved here as children and have grown up as basically United, as if they were United States citizens, but do not have citizenship. Trump has a I think a fundamentally racist desire to deport these people, even though they've grown up here and often don't even speak Spanish. And he has shut down the program that Barack Obama started that sort of gave them temporary legal status and has claimed that he was interested in a bill that would give them permanent legal status, but at every point along the way has found opportunities to take any effort to actually pass such a bill. So from the perspective of somebody who's a quote unquote dreamer, uh, somebody who has had this temporary legal status and has been desiring the permanent legal status, um, it's got to feel like the government is yanking you around, right? And it's really unfortunate because it's a reminder that, you know, these kind of political shell games um, have real people's lives at the center of them. 
And these are, you know, mostly just ordinary working people. Um, the folks who got temporary legal, legal status under the Obama program have generally gone into jobs where there's a lot of people needed. So they become teachers and emergency care workers and folks like that. And now they're kind of, now, unfortunately, they're facing this very real possibility that Trump is just for, you know, political gamemanship going to start sending them away to countries that many of them have no memory of. Alice, coming back to you, you talked about um, a partisan divide, and it's something which I want to ask Amanda about uh, later to do with the dreamers and the partisan divide over here in the United States. But describe um, in detail for us exactly how people on the left have reacted to this um, Bindra scandal? And then uh, people on the right, how have you seen it play out? Well, um, I'll do a summary first. There's two key strands at the moment in uh, in the political debate around kind of race and, and, and race issues. One is uh, Jeremy Corbyn and anti-Semitism. And on um, the Tory side, it's the Tory party and racism. And um, when you look at the papers, when you read both sides of the papers, it's almost sometimes like one of the stories isn't happening, <laughs> uh, which is kind of clear when it comes to a partisan divide over which issue you, you care about most. And from my perspective, both are incredibly reprehensible. Uh, they've both got different causes and they're both two things that I don't want to see in British society. Having said that, The Guardian really has been doing a fantastic job, um, Amelia Gentleman, to find the stories of the Windrush generation to, uh, she's, I think she's been given the opportunity to work on this for about six months by The Guardian at the moment. And it's just testament to how great uh, investigative journalism really can be. And I think every single day or pretty much it seems like every, every six hours or so, they bring out a new side to this story. And so the reaction from the left has been you know, I, I think I think in some ways it has shown though how little the kind of champagne socialists really know about working class issues. Like similar, it sounds to the Dreamers. There's a lot of these people have been dinner ladies, train drivers, truck drivers, um, cleaners, the people who really are the backbone of the society. And for whatever reason, they just haven't needed to get a passport. They haven't had any sort of influence over government in any sort of way, and so they've just been ignored. Um, and so I think it does show that, you know, both sides of the debate are completely out of touch with what is going on um, with the working class in, in UK society. Because um, it, isn't, it isn't just people from the Caribbean as well. I think I read something about a Canadian dinner lady as well who was just treated so appallingly despite having been here since 1971 and never worked in Canada. Uh, so that's, that's definitely the left-hand side. Um, the left-hand, the, the lefty side of the debate, um, whereas when you read... You know, the Times, the Telegraph, uh, it, it is very much about uh, Corbyn and anti-Semitism. Uh, so quite often when you look at both sides of the debate, quite often choosing not to engage is the way that a lot of people choose to deal with um, accusations which are perhaps unfavourable towards them. Amanda, the Tory-led coalition government in 2010 began the hostile environment policy. Uh, so everyday life was made uncomfortable, if not impossible, uh, for people without proof of their legal status. And many brown communities in the States claim a similar kind of hostile environment now, fearing the bang on the door for ICE agents. Back in 2013, there was a bipartisan bill 
put forward by the Gang of Eight. Why in five years has the issue of the Dreamers and Darker become only viewed through partisan prism? What has happened in those last five years in American politics? Well, Donald Trump exposed something that the Republican Party, a lot of members of the Republican Party, I think, didn't really want to admit to themselves, which is that the Republican coalition in the United States is a white identity coalition, right? They wanted to believe that there was a way to build a coalition, a a multiracial coalition, or at least one that folded in Latinos, um, that was about small government and conservative politics and other things like that. And, you know, Donald Trump ran and just, he was against it and he won the primary and he won it pretty easily, I would argue. And he just proved that what actually motivates the work a day Republican voter, if not the politician is these kind of politics of racial grievance and trying to maintain a white supremacist society. And now that they know what their, where their base is and they know how immovable they are on this particular issue, I think Republican politicians have just sort of given up. And, you know, I would say the flip has happened, which is Democrats realized that this is an opportunity for them. And they've moved really aggressively into the space that they were you know, there before, but I think have gotten more aggressive about, which is this notion that we should be, that they should be the party of, of immigration, that they should be aggressively pro-immigrant, that this is going to be a long-term, a long-term plan for them, which gives me some hope because I do hope that when Democrats get into office, they will treat passing an immigration reform bill as a priority. Let me just understand something, Amanda. How does an issue like um, Dark and the Dreamers play out in somewhere like Florida, which has a large amount of Cuban um, immigrants, Cuban-American immigrants, who traditionally vote Republican? So how does that kind of play out in somewhere like that? Well, what we've been seeing with the Cuban-American vote in Florida is that it's been moving to the left over a period of many years. I think that... You know, in in my lifetime as um, an American who grew up, uh, I'm a white person, but I grew up in a majority Latino part of the country myself, but they were mostly Mexican-American. I, I, when I was a kid, I feel like the identity of Latino wasn't particularly formed in this country. People were Puerto Rican or Cuban or Mexican or et cetera, et cetera. And now because of white supremacy and the politics of racial grievance, this category of Latino has really formed as a political identity. And I think that it's affecting Florida politics in a way that is, you know, really, you know, redounding to the benefit of Democrats because it's, it's taking a, a category of Latino voters, Cuban Americans, who used to be solidly Republican and really eroding um, their support for Republicans. Over to you, Alice. This policy was first formulated um, under the stewardship of Theresa May while she was Home Secretary in the coalition government. Why haven't you taken more, more flack from this? Why is it that this is all on Amber Rudd's back? Say so the policy of, host, of the hostile environment. Well, just the whole scandal, basically. 
that she seems to be being able to um, just about dodge the uh, many of the slings and arrows which have been uh, thrown at the government. And it's Amber Rudd who seems to be taking the flak for her. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was just reading about this as well, because Theresa May was definitely getting more of the blame, I'd say, about 10 days ago. And um, it's Amber Rudd who seems to just twist herself into knots over, you know, all her speeches about saying how horrified she is, despite 10 days ago not seeming to care at all. Hmm. So I think um, Amber Rudd has dealt with this very, very poorly, um, in essence. And, and Theresa May, um, I, was, I was just reading about her time in the Home Office because it, it really felt like um, everything in the Home Office from about 2010 till 2015, like there was nothing to see here. And, you know, there was that old, old idea that um, was it the Home Office is like the graveyard for politicians. So it's where, they, it's where they literally go to die and end their careers because it is typically a place where there is so much scandal. Um, and um, I was speaking to um, kind of a friend of mine who works in the civil service and, and, and Theresa May had this reputation of always following the law to the letter. So there would never be, ab- there'd absolutely be never any exceptions. There'd never be any mercy, I suppose, for out, um, outliers and, and different cases. Whereas Amber Rudd seems to have more of a kind of, believe it or not, an, an empathetic stance mm. towards um, changing the law, tweaking the law in places where it doesn't quite seem to fit people who she has emotional response to. Um, so they are very, very different home secretaries. Um, and Amber Rudd just isn't quite as good at um, keeping the scandals quiet. And I don't know whether or not you'd see that as a good thing or a bad thing, you know. Um, I think it's I, interesting that you said that it's um, it's an office where people go to, in effect, end their careers because I suppose I'm sufficiently old enough to remember that it was always classed as one of the three main offices of state and it was something of, you know, great renown if you became the Home Secretary. Um, but doesn't this really get to, one of the things that you're saying doesn't really get to the heart of the issue, that you can have an immigration policy and you can have quotas you can um, you can have directives. You can do whatever the hell you want, but actually, how it all plays out is by playing out with real people in real situations, and then that is what's come to hit this government squarely between the eyes. Because the, we are talking about people of pensionable age who have been in this country for fifty odd years, paid all their taxes, and then all of a sudden have been deported to detention centres and it's the optics of that it doesn't matter what colour they are um, it just doesn't look good it, it it looks it looks absolutely terrible and and you're totally you're you're, you're totally right on that kind of front I, I guess well you know me I, I suppose I suppose listeners to your your um, mid-Atlantic show aren't aware that I, I do try and read both sides of the argument and often end up having kind of a bad position I don't have kind of a firm opinion on quite a lot of things because I am trying to say well as a bleeding heart, like how can I learn from the other side? And there is, you know, similar in the US, um, um, a concern over overpopulation in the UK, which which probably isn't founded, but still there's this huge rhetoric around the fact that um, there's way too many people coming to the UK, there's not enough services, council homes aren't available for the people who need them. And that, that very much was um, the dialogue in 2010 through to 2015, as well as um, complete... I would say hysteria over um, the fear of terrorist attacks because you know the chances of a terrorist attack happening is actually very very small, and the chances of dying in a terrorist attack is actually very very small. It's just that there's so much media attention on these things that you then feel like it's a greater danger than it is. So 
yes, it is absolutely appalling that people who are British citizens are being deported um, and treated appallingly, treated like criminals when they absolutely should not be treated like criminals. Um, and But the hostile environment was kind of past. You know, I mean, I did hear people talking about it, but it was generally from the point of view of um, prevent, which was against um, uh, like Muslim populations to try and make sure that they would know if someone was planning on going to Syria. Um, but the, the point is, is that a lot of this stuff... The communities knew it was happening. And for some reason, it didn't reach, you know, our ears, the intelligentsia, I suppose you could say, until two weeks ago or maybe three or four months ago. So um, the hostile the hostile environment now is getting the scrutiny that it should probably have got back in 2012 when it was announced as a policy. Um, and this whole aspect of whether or not Theresa May is... Uh, is perhaps getting off the hook slightly with this, and she's and Amber Rudd is having way too much scrutiny. Well, that's just politics. That's just how. Um, is this a way for the Tory press actually to nix her as being the next leader of the party? What to, Amber Rudd? I don't think Amber. Yeah, well, Amber Rudd. That that fear was kind of uh, that fear was uh, that was not going to happen when she got the. Um, the majority that she got in Hastings, right, in 2015, like her, 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 her majority was way too small because before that, everyone saw Amber Rudd as the potential new leader of the Tory party for sure. Um, but I feel like, yeah, it was 2015 where everyone realised Amber Rudd's on quite shaky ground here. She hasn't got a great safe seat. Uh, that's, that's, that's my take on what I've heard anyway. Amanda, let, let's end with you. So um, we're going to neatly talk about the forthcoming blue wave in American politics. And this is somewhat of, of a link. And I'm patting myself on the back for this. Right, so here goes. What's going to be the fate of the darker bill and the dreamers if we have a Congress which is controlled by the Democrats and uh, a Senate of which, um, if the Democrats don't get a majority, um, there are definitely two or three uh, Republican senators who are pro-immigration reform. Will Trump sign a deal um, so that um, these million-plus um, Americans can actually have their immigration status no. um, dealt with? I mean, he says he will, um, but I cannot emphasize enough that whatever decision Trump comes to eventually, it's always going to be the one that is the most racist he can get away with. And, but I, but I thought he 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 liked the opinion of the last person in the room. So you get um, Nancy Pelosi, you get uh, Chuck Schumer, etc. Uh, they're Mr. President. You can do this deal. You can be seen as a hero to um, men, many Americans. Wouldn't he just sign that bill if he doesn't have to worry about um, Paul, you know Paul Ryan will be long gone. And, you know, Mitch McConnell will, will be um, a much more diminished figure. You know, I really wish it was that way. I really, really do. But I think that my sense of this is that, like a lot of bigots, Trump can be sentimental at times and he can kind of be appealed to on this idea that he is this benevolent, guy who's going to give people, you know, these things. But in the long run, he's not going to do that. Um, and he, no, if nothing else, 
the the opinions of Fox News and Ann Coulter and all these right wing pundits is going to end up mattering more than anything Nancy Pelosi could say to him. She could probably get him to agree to anything in person because he's kind of a coward. But I think that as soon as she walks out of the room, his cowardice and and f- basically fundamental agreement with the right wing punditry that America should be a white country is going to cause him to do whatever he can to derail DACA. Now, I think his preference, of course, is to derail it before he actually has to veto a bill because he doesn't, he prefers the situation where he's got everybody, you know, on tenterhooks and wondering if will he or will he not sign it, where he can kind of live in the space where he pretends that he's not as racist as he actually is, if it's, if for moments it suits him, right? But I think How ultimately he's Amanda when he's friends with uh, Kanye West. Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> Are they friends? Are they? <laughs> Can I just say that tweet was one of my favorite tweets ever where he said, uh, my wife has just called me up to tell me that I shouldn't have tweeted. <laughs> I, just tweeted. <laughs> I mean, I, I've long felt like Kim Kardashian is a nicer person than people give her credit for. <laughs> <laughs> it was just felt like he was you know he'd just been told off and he kind of wanted to tell people that he'd just been told off (laughs) anyway sorry no No, it's okay I I was probably being long-winded but like long story short I think no matter what happens Trump is going to try to find a way to kill DACA um the only thing that's going to save DACA is getting him out of office A record number of women are running for office this year, including nearly 500 who have their sights set on the nation's capital. Meg Oliver tells us about two female candidates who are hoping for big wins in Texas, which holds its primary elections on Tuesday. Gina Ortiz-Jones and Lizzie Panel-Fletcher are asking Texas voters to send them to Washington. Donald Trump is threatening everything we stand for. Fletcher is a lawyer chasing a congressional seat in Houston that's been in Republican hands since George H.W. Bush took office in 1967. This district, the one that I'm running in, is ready to flip. Jones is an Iraq war vet who wants to be the first woman and Filipina-American to represent San Antonio. You know, this is not a spectator sport, right? We've got to get off the sidelines and be part of this. In 2016, a total of 237 women ran for House and Senate seats. The Rutgers Center for American Women in Politics says today there are 495 female likely candidates for Congress. Nothing shy of a movement to see this number of women, mostly Democratic, tossing their hand in the ring. A record breaking number of women um, are running for office this year. Amanda, why is this? Quite simply. I think. Um Women are fed up in this country. It's not actually that complicated. Uh, The Women's March, I think, inspired a lot of people. Um, I think Hillary Clinton inspired a lot of people. Uh, It's one of those kind of weird things about social change, which is Hillary Clinton lost the election because of sexism, um, because a lot of people, a lot of voters just couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that a woman is running for president. And yet, I think just simply by running, she made the possibility of running for office more possible, like more, more imaginable for a lot of women. And I think for voters, I think um, 
you know, a, a lot of people, and also she got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. And so I think that also sent a message to a lot of women that they can run, they can win, they can get more votes. Um, and unless you're running for president, you're not really up against the electoral college. So uh, it can't really be stolen from you as easily as it, as it was from Hillary Clinton. Alice. I think this is somewhat of a dichotomy here, and, and I think that what Amanda is saying absolutely is the narrative. But white women helped Trump gain the presidency, voting for him uh, 53% um, according to exit polls. And among white women with a college education, the gulf was even larger, it was 62% to, to 34%. So if women helped Trump gain into power. Why are so many women, why do you think so many women are running as Democrats this year? I mean, uh, sorry, did you say that it's 64% of college educated women voted for Trump? Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. what you just, oh, wow. White, white women, white women. Oh, but, and college educated in the US is up to age 21, is it? I would have 21, 22. Oh my God, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's crazy. Mm-hmm. It was a shocker to me too, and I I read read the stats doing the research for this. Um, I had so so a lot of the work that so I'm I'm at the Oxford Internet Institute at the moment. I'm researching echo chambers, and I'm researching what um you what what is a better theory of echo chambers. And I do think that a lot of these binary votes, um, there's a lot of attributions as to why someone chooses to vote in the way that they do, um, especially when it comes to identity politics. Um, and quite often, uh, something that's an absolute no-go for one person who is part of that identity isn't quite so much of a, a problem for another person of that identity, and we tend to lump them all together. Um, I, I am surprised to hear those statistics, though. I'm amazed that 63% of women, of educated women, voted for, for Donald Trump. Um, uh, well, I, White women. Educated you know, white just, women, sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. educated white women. Why, why am I more running for the Democrats? I, I feel that um, if, if I was in America right now and I had experienced um, the, the Trump election and I was a Hillary Clinton supporter and I was so excited to have the first female president of the United States, someone who had a, an amazing wealth of experience, um, I would I would be incredibly motivated to run for politics. If, on the other hand, I was in America and I had been a Trump supporter and then I'd seen my candidate win, I don't think I'd be quite as motivated to run and try and change the world. There's there's so much stress that comes from being a politician in any respect. Um, the diplomacy that's required, the scrutiny that's um, that is then on you and your family, and I think you really need to be incredibly motivated in order to do that. So it, it's of absolute no surprise at all that. Um, a, a group of people who feel like their, um, uh, I suppose their their the heart of their politics has has uh, you know the the floor has kind of collapsed from below them would then be more motivated than by someone who uh, you know got what they wanted they the the, the guy they they voted for got in so uh, and that and that's me just kind of grouping together a lot of people like I just said <laughs> you, you you potentially shouldn't do. So that would, that would, I suppose, be the reason. I, w- I want to pop in and, and say one thing really quickly, which is, I, I, I don't mean to undermine, but the exit polls from CNN actually show that white college-educated women, 51% of them voted for Clinton. So a slim majority of white college-educated women voted for Clinton. Okay. 
that makes that right. makes more sense. <laughs> well, I'm listening. That makes much more sense <laughs> yeah. to me. And I, I need to go back. And I was this the Washington Post that I grabbed this from. But anyway, by the way, um, I'm, and uh, I, you're never undermining if you're fact checking. <laughs> I just one <laughs> percent of non college educated white women. That voted for Trump. Ah, okay. Well, then that that, that make that makes much more sense. Um, but I definitely got here. Um, it was white women. Oh, you know what? I can't read. White women without a college education. <laughs> even Thank you. Well done. <laughs> we have an adult in the room. Thank you. We were just going. Wow. <laughs> Why haven't I heard that before? I've done quite a lot of analysis on this, and that one just completely escapes me. <laughs> yeah, there's a fundamental difference. Uh, that whole kind of like sentence. If you leave out the word without, but anyway, right. What are we doing now, in that section? Are we just listen? We'll leave it in because it just shows that, that I'm somewhat of an ass, and uh, Amanda, that you are on it. So we'll we'll leave it in because we've made sense out of it. Now um, you're going to try and make sense out of this for me as well, please, uh, Amanda. Now, women, uh, the, the landmark election for women in um, U.S. politics was 1992 when women gained uh, seats in the House and the Senate in record numbers. What did that election change materially for women in American politics? Well, um, there's two things about the 1992 election that I think are important to understand. One is that that was largely a reaction to the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings of 1991, a lot of women were um, motivated to run for office because a obvious and known sexual harasser was appointed to the Supreme Court despite this high-profile um, testimony of a woman stepping forward to speak out against him. So I think we're seeing a similar thing happen in reaction to Donald Trump this year with women stepping forward. Um, I think that the number of women, which has been increasing ever since, that have been elected to Congress actually does have a material benefit to women and to uh, Americans generally. The fact of the matter is that both on the left and the right, women tend to vote a little differently than men. But more importantly, especially amongst Democrats, women bring forward more bills more in different kinds of bills than their male counterparts do that sort of affect working people and women and people of color significantly well. So there's been a lot more um, of those kinds of bills introduced. And we even saw it in the 90s when shortly after the Year of the Woman, 1992, they passed the Violence Against Women Act in 1996. And the Violence Against Women Act has been of tremendous value to the United States. It has drastically lowered domestic violence rates. Um, it has lowered rape rates. It's lowered domestic murder rates. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it's it's kind of astonishing how how much it did so. And I think, you know, the Family Medical Leave Act got passed after that. Um, another example of women really kind of helping push forward these female-friendly policies. And I think what we're seeing now in the United States is that things like the Me Too movement and the 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 continued discourse around fighting sexual assault is being driven in, in part because there's so many women in Congress that are willing to speak out about these issues and, and give women on the ground hope that things can be done if they advocate for it. 
do you really think that the Me Too movement has had an extra, kind of like, has it had extra wind in its sails because of um, female politicians? I, for me, it's much more of a media-driven thing, and that female politicians in the states have been much, have been, I'm not going to say silent on the issue, but have been much more uh, reactive as opposed to proactive about talking about issues to do with the marginalisation of women. It, it, within the world of politics, and at least within, you know, the world of Congress or even the Senate. I do think it does, and I'll, and I'll, and the reason is that a lot of the time, huge social movements like Me Too have precursors in them. They kind of seem like they come out of nowhere, but in fact, it's often been years and years of people working, activists and politicians and leaders working a little bit more out of sight before it kind of boils up to this level where all of a sudden it explodes into this huge movement, right? And we definitely see that with Me mm-hmm. Too. The precursors to that, I think, um, you see someone like Kirsten Gillibrand has been pushing bills um, to reduce sexual assault in the military. Um, the Obama administration uh, worked with activists for years before Me Too was even a thing to help reduce uh, rape on campus and to to push policies on campus that make it easier for victims of rape to get justice and, and sexual harassment. So this has all been going on and it hasn't, it's been getting some media coverage, but it wasn't as big a deal as Me Too. And it laid the groundwork, I think, for Me Too to happen. And and so, yeah, I do think, especially, you know, Gillibrand in particular, I want to single out for praise because she's really been at the forefront of this effort to, to keep sexual violence um, legislation at the center of the conversation. All right. Let's go back over to the other side of the Atlantic and speak to you, Alice. The, uh, the recommendation of the Cross-Party Women's and Equality Select Committee was that 45% of each party's candidates should be women. And currently, 45% of Labour MPs are actually female. Why has that party never elected a female leader when the Tories can boast too? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big question, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I actually think that when you've got such slow, low numbers, um, you know, because two, two leaders isn't exactly a, 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 like a high number. You can't then start doing statistical. Um, it's not statistically. It's not um, significant. It's not significant. No, absolutely. You know, if we were going to talk about the P value of it, it would be huge. So, um, that's one side but, of it. Okay, but but, 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 but but let's count this, right? Let's say in um, since the nineteen seventies, Heath, Thatcher, Major, um, who came after Major, um, but, goodness, uh, those, those funny uh, ones. Uh, they, 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 well, no, no, I'm talking about the Tory party. Oh, sorry, oh, right? Hague. Hague. Beforehand. Right, you had, yeah, you had Hague, you had. Duncan Smith, the guy with the brown, the the other no mark with 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 the brown hair and glasses. His name I can't remember. And then you've got Cameron. So you've got eight, and they've had two out of eight. Michael That's Howard is who you're thinking. Yeah, Michael Howard. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, and and two it just out of eight is significant. Two and the Labour Party is the party of inclusion. Uh, women's rights, etc. Et I don't. Th- I think if you were to run a statistical analysis on this, I'd think two out of eight wouldn't be a 
I don't think you get a p-value which is low enough for it to be too significant, mainly because the uh, the sample size is way too small. So, uh, it, I, I, from my perspective, all right, but 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 wouldn't somebody on the right say that these yeah, women they absolutely would, and I hear it the whole positions. time. I hear it the whole time that people are like, well, you know, mm. what's what's the party of feminism? Um, and clearly, it's the Tory party because the Tory party has produced two prime ministers not even leaders, but prime ministers, and the Labour Party has produced none. Um, and I, th- I think at the moment there is a, a kind of a clash of what feminism is, right? So you've got and, – and I think women in the UK are incredibly strong on both sides, and I just – I welcome the debate more than anything. You've got people like Ella Whelan who has written a book called What Women Want, Not Feminism. You've got Claire Fox as well who believes that feminism has gone too far. And you've got amazing people on the other side, people like Diane Abbott who is – amazing she's such an inspiration um and you've got people who are kind of on the on the side of i suppose third and fourth wave feminism so it it really depends on what you believe feminism is and also i I don't know whether or not it has anything to do with um kind of the way that different voter different parties vote in their leaders but as far as i'm concerned it's not statistically significant so i kind of view those arguments with a bit of a all right all right (laughs) But it's hard not to be an old dyed-in-the-wool lefty like me and not actually be inspired by Ruth Davidson. Oh, my God, she's amazing. She is amazing. She is pregnant and she's leading the Conservative Party in Scotland. I love Ruth Davidson. She She's just also kind of like so desperately uncool, you know, you know in a way that you just kind of think, actually, that's really cool. You know, she likes Taekwondo. No, exactly. <laughs> She's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, look, I, 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 there's many people who kind of hypothesize over why the Tory party does produce more female leaders. And like I say, I just don't think it's statistically significant. I think it Even though the debate. Labour Party has 45% of its MPs. Are yeah, exactly. So we do the numbers, but they run the party. And I think, I think it's probably to do with different, I mean, I, when I say probably, I actually have no idea what it is. It's just there's different ideologies at play here. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm a fan of quotas. Um, I'm kind of looking because my focus is often on technology ethics at the moment. Now I'm at the Oxford Internet Institute, and I'm looking at the number of VCs who fund female run startups. And also the studies that go into why that happens, it all tends to be around, oh, well, startups get... Um, funded if they have a great team and there's that emphasis on the word great which means that a woman will never be able to satisfy the word great in the eyes of the vcs purely because they're looking for people who you know are incredibly confident and have i you know all, all i mean women are definitely confident as well but they always find ways to undermine them in a way that it, it, it doesn't make them great so I, I am actually pro quotas in this fashion i think it's just a matter of time before labor has its has its female leader um and, you know, I don't think you can't, well, you can't put a quota on that when it comes to the Labour Party um, process for voting in a, um, a leader itself. So, no, I, I, you know, I just see it as two separate ideologies. One is which you kind of go and get it and it's um, a meritocracy and you fight your way up to the top. And that has, you know, ostensibly provided um, the, late, the Conservative Party with three leaders, one of which is Ruth Davidson, who is amazing. And um, the Labour Party um, has a different approach. But no, I, I, I haven't done the numbers myself, but I would think that it's not statistically significant. So it's probably, it's just a load of people who get one case study and think that that's worth talking about. In my eyes, it's, it's not. 
symbolically it's definitely significant though so i hear you i hear you sister it is but you know the uh, the anti-immigration arguments are great symbolically (laughs) yeah it's uh yeah i think either you've got to kind of trust in um trust in science and trust in like the social science practices that exist in these kind of cases and 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 really care about facts or or not and uh yeah let's go with your gut I, I hear you. Yeah. Now, uh, let's uh, go back to New York um, and try and get a handle on this. Women make up a fifth of Congress, um, despite Amanda comprising half of the population, of course. Um, only six states have women as governors, while 22 states have never had a female chief executive. Uh, Amanda, why historically has U.S. politics been such a male preserve, at least compared to other significant Western democracies? That's something I struggle with quite a bit. And I think especially, you know, from my point of view as an American, it seems to me that American politics tends to invest more in personalities and and in the romanticization of the leader as as this conduit for the voter's own identity you know that which is you know sometimes is to the benefit of the voters right barack obama benefited from that and he was a pretty good leader but i think that it makes it difficult for women because it 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 the image of like people's like platonic ideal of what a great leader is in the United States, that what they imagine is this manly man, this, you know, whatever kind of man they want. It's almost always a man. And, and they've struggled to imagine women as being this sort of ideal, idealized leader in their mind. And it's getting a little better. And I think Hillary Clinton probably helped a lot a lot of people imagine that a little bit more but i think that's part of the problem whereas i think and obviously you all would know more than i about this but i kind of feel that the the more coalition politics of western europe don't lend themselves as easily to people projecting all their hopes and fears and and the romance of of the political leader onto uh candidates the one thing which really strikes me about American politics actually is the role of the spouse, and invariably that is female, that there is no first lady, first gentleman in British politics. In, um, yes, the, the president's wife has a position-ish in France, but it's not official. It's not semi-official in the way that the first lady is. And I'm always struck by seeing... Um, male politicians, st- um, you know, uh, on the stump and holding up the hand of their wife and their wife supporting them. Yes, it does happen in the UK, but not at all to the same degree. That there is that it isn't just for me the position of um, what type of leader do you want and should they have traits which historically you see as being male. It's it's almost a, it's almost a representation of the family with the man at the head, which you see so often in American politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really astute observation, and and it's worse on the presidential level because, as you said, the first lady is an official 
title base. It's an unofficial title, but it might as well be an official title. Their mm-hmm. duties and of office are are pretty well laid out. I will note that Is it paid? Huh? Is it paid just out of interest being a first lady? No. Is it an unpaid female position? No, it's not paid, but they have their own office in the White yeah. House. And um, the staff that are paid. Yeah. My God. They have their own office. They have duties of office. Um, and interestingly, the last two Democratic first ladies um, put up real resistance to to taking that role on. Michelle Obama at one point thought she could stay living in Chicago <laughs> and was told, no, that's not how this works. Um, Hillary Clinton, I think, um, I don't know if you all remember, but she actually was put on uh, staff as a a legislator, a legislation drafter, and that went so poorly for her that she ended up retreating back to the more traditional role of the first lady. But yeah, it, it's 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 an interesting thing it, to the point where Hillary Clinton was repeatedly asked um, on the campaign trail what Bill Clinton was going to do when he was in that role. <laughs> Because it was very difficult for people to imagine former President Bill Clinton doing things that the First Lady has to do, which is things like picking out China, designing menus, organizing parties, things like that. That would be good to see change, wouldn't it? Yeah, I would have loved to see that. (laughs) (laughs) But it just, you know, whether or not like a man or a woman has to take that role, like the idea of there being an unpaid role that is traditionally for a woman so far up in American government is... You know, if we're talking about symbolism, <laughs> for presidents, that's not great symbolically. For presidents in the past who've been unmarried, they've literally moved other female relatives into the house to do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I would have be, if I was married to, well, I, I will never be in this position, but I'd be having words, private words. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Obama tried. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of The History of England. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. 
She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man, these are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England... As she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man, these are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Right then, um, Amanda, um, it's over to you first as our new person on the team. What has been your takeaway of the last seven days? It's got to be something which lifts our spirit, gives us an insight into the psyche of humanity, something of which we can take away and smile. Go. <laughs> well, it's, it's both a little bad and a little good. Um, once again, uh, it's been announced that George R. R. Martin, who has been writing the Song of Ice and Fire series that Game of Thrones is based on, is not going to release the sixth predicted book, the penultimate book, for another year at least. And the good news from this is I think that um, fans that have been kind of hoping that they would get an ending to this story from the books can finally resign themselves to the fact that the TV show is all they're going to (laughs) get. And they can go into the last season of Game of Thrones excited and ready to know how the story ends without feeling conflicted about any kind of loyalties to the book. Have you read all of them? Yes. for five. When did you start? Um, I started after season three of Game of Thrones because it is such a page turner of a story. I mean, except obviously I was only watching it on TV that I really just wanted to know what happened next. So I sympathize with uh, people who've been reading these books since 1996 and they, they're they desperate for the books to end and they, they get the, the ending that George R. R. Martin wanted. But um, I think that the TV show is really good and people should you know not underestimate how much fun and value they're going to get out of having the story resolved that way. But the books are so much better. I've only read, I think I've read one and a half about six or seven years ago. 
and just the dialogue is superb and the pathos and you know the pacing it's just amazing whereas i feel like the um tv show has kind of lost its way since it stopped getting the dialogue direct from george R. R. martin i don't know if you agree with that yeah the dialogue isn't as good he's he's a funny writer he's a and I think, unfortunately, that might be one of the things that's keeping him from finishing it. You know, he, he's a perfectionist. Yeah. That's that's one out of two. Oh, two. <laughs> um, I, I guess my other thing this week I'm excited about, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to go see Avengers Affinity War, Infinity War stop, tonight. Stop, stop, stop. I'm going to talk about that. So oh. that <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Oh. Well, the, my one takeaway is I'm very <laughs> proud of myself because I used to not be a, a spoiler-free person and I've embraced the spoiler-free life and I, I think I'm going to enjoy it more for it. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> let me tell you a little something then in, in a little bit. But anyway, um, how about you, Miss Thwaite? Um, what's your, been your takeaway before I talk about my experience of being in the cinema to watch at Vendor's Affinity War yesterday? I'm going to do something really cheeky and I'm just going to do a massive plug for something I'm working right. on at the moment. Go. Uh, so I'm working on a show with um, my pal here in uh, in Oxford. He uh, He's from Seattle um, called Andrew and we're working on a show called Talking with Alice and Andrew about tech. Are you allowed to swear on Mid-Atlantic? Uh, yes. Okay. Mick Wright done. <laughs> he does it anyway. Okay, yeah, just you never know. You never know what. So yeah, we, we, I, so I'll just say it. We're called twats. <laughs> We're called talking with Alice and Andrew about tech shirts, and uh, it's one of those words that has no meaning in the US, but to Brits we find it funny. So we get guests on. We ask them if they're a twat, and they say yes, and we talk about tech ethics. And on that note, I suppose another key takeaway that I actually watched today is um, a friend of mine, James Young, uh, has just. Uh, this month broadcast a new documentary for the BBC which is all about sex robots um, and um, how sex bots are being manufactured, uh, the relationship with AI and just how they're going to change society and I think it's available to people on both sides of the Atlantic and it truly is phenomenal and I think that James is just such a wonderful presenter, he's kind of um, breaking free of this status quo of um, BBC journalists being quite kind of like looking at horrific things with absolutely no emotion, and James just tears up the rule book in that kind of way, and it, it it's it's wonderful. So um, yeah, look out for it on the BBC. Um, it's uh, it's called something Sex Robots. I'll uh, I don't know if you would put it up on the website. It's called um, The Future of Sex: Sex Robots and Us. I'd advise watching it. I have to ask a question. When you say twats, do you, is it spelled T-W-A-T-S? It's spelled T-W-A-A-A-T-S. Because okay. we do have the word <laughs> twats.com was a really expensive We do have the word name. twat in English. <laughs> or American English. That's really interesting because Andrew keeps on calling it twats. And I'm like, why are you doing this? It's really called twats. <laughs> And he hasn't brought up this. So what does the word twat mean in America? American. In American? Uh, in it's, America. It's not very common. I, yeah. I think I heard it more in the South, but it's um, it just means like cunt, like vagina. Oh. Yeah, it's the same, similar. The same similar. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about sex toys and sex robots. So he doesn't really talk about sex toys. It's more just the manufacture. Oh. It's, 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 it's the manufacture of the female form in a very sexualized way and just the power play and the fact that a lot of these robots are being manufactured by men. 
Um, and they're just quite often just lying around in very sexual poses, completely naked, and what impact that might have on human psychology in the future. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. Um, hopefully, we'll do a twats on it soon. Um, but it's it's a really important topic um, for for society and for feminism, and um, you know, for the I, you know, if you like the term or not, culture wars. You know, this whole idea of the manosphere wanting to break free of women in this kind of way and being so scared that women are actually going to break free of them when they're creating these sex robots. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a great documentary. It's only half an hour, and I'd, I'd, I'd advise advise taking a look. It is it is traumatic in places though. So you know, if you're uh, yeah, there's a really horrible scene in it. Uh, but you know, if you if you don't know these things are happening, we'll put a link in the show notes. Now, um, yesterday, I went along to see Avengers: Infinity War. Now, people that um, are long devotees to this podcast will know that superheroes are very close to my heart and arguably with my first exposure to American culture being a a British kid in the 1970s reading uh, these American comics. And Captain America has always been my favorite superhero, not because he embodied some view of what made America great, but because he was relatively underpowered and had to be smart and was strategic so um i've always loved superheroes and i'm a marvel boy through and through i've just got to say whether you think the film is good or not and it's definitely epic avengers infinity (laughs) war you have to see it in the first weekend before all the spoilers are out there see it commune with other people that like the genre because you will gasp people gasp it's like going back to the 1920s and going into the cinema all the way through people are like i can't believe that's just happened within the first five minutes you go what no way (laughs) (laughs) right all the way it is the most satisfying communal experience and then when you get to the end you go, well, that can't be the end. And it is. There's another gasp. It's like, huh? Right. It's just, if ever something needed to be uh, watched, viewed, consumed with other people, it is this film. I've never, it, it's like going to uh, the Apollo in Harlem, which is a very visceral experience where, you know, the audience are the participants as well. It is that level of audience engagement. Go and see it in two weeks' time when the spoilers are out there. It will not have the same effect. But go and see it on opening night and with a whole load of people who actually have read the spoilers, but you are still shocked. And you've got to get all the way to the end and end and do the end credit scene as well. It's just absolutely brilliant. And all I can say is, without wanting to spoil it, Tom Holland um, doesn't appear on screen that much as Spider-Man. But boy, oh boy, the last scene with him, that guy can act. That guy can act. So um, that's me, Avengers Infinity War. So Amanda, Ah. go and enjoy. Go and enjoy and watch it as early tomorrow as possible. Because I think with each subsequent showing, the gas will get less and less. 
you know, when, when the spoilers are out there. But this has been Mid-Atlantic, folk. Please review us on iTunes or a podcatcher of your choice to show us your support for our left-of-centre progressive hashtag MeToo pinko communist. We don't give a flying fuck. We just love everybody and want everybody to understand uh, that some people start off from life from a position of disadvantage and we need to try and equalise that. Um, you can show us. Uh, you can follow us on social media, specifically Twitter, where we are Mid Atlantic Show. You can find us on Facebook. I'm rubbish on both of those platforms, uh, but show us your support there. Um, Amanda, if somebody wants to follow you on the social media, how can they do that? I'm on Twitter at Amanda Marcotte. Nice and simple. Cool. And how about you, Miss Thwaite? I'm Alice L Thwaite, which is T H W A I T E, on Twitter fantastic we'll see you all again soon hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.